Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. Hello dear friends and welcome to another episode of Question and Answer with Bishop Julian Porteous. And I have with me as always the lovely Jovina Graham. Hello there. And myself the lovely Jeremy Andrews. <laughs> now friends, we have a very interesting question for the Bishop today. And that is, Bishop, can you tell us, you know, what's the go? What's happened with religious life? I guess in our country, but, you know, generally what's happened? I mean, gone are the days when you see, you know... Women, nuns, uh, in habits, walking around the street. I mean, we're more likely to see a, a Muslim woman in a hijab than a religious, you know, Catholic nun. So why has there been this plummet of numbers, um, these changes in religious life where even the few nuns we seem to have don't wear habits anymore and seem to live a different type of life than what we'd imagine or what we see in the movies um, of those golden days of of religious life. Yes, uh, it's one of the things that I think Catholics are very, very aware of. Older people would, would say they went to a Catholic school where the whole staff of the primary school in the parish was uh, was made up of religious sisters, you know, and uh, <clears throat> sisters were present in, in every parish. Uh, you'd have, like, all the, the children preparing for First Holy Communion would be prepared thoroughly by the nuns and drilled, you know, before they'd make their First Holy Communion very thoroughly. And, and, and the nuns would be, would be seen walking around down the shops. Uh, the convent would be very evidently there as a, the place where the nuns lived. So religious were very integral to the life of, of uh, the parish and the life of the church. And there were thousands upon thousands of nuns, say, in Australia. Um, and there were far more nuns than there were priests in, in, in our country. And yet uh, now we've, we've seen a, a very dramatic change. As you said, the, the numbers have, um, have really plummeted uh, significantly and still continue to do so. Uh, it is interesting to, to note that um, while, while numbers for priests declined somewhat after the Second Vatican Council, say, um, now numbers are increasing. And certainly across the world, the numbers of priests are increasing significantly. But we're not seeing uh, the, the same thing happening with uh, female religious and that uh, their numbers still continue to decline. And we see that particularly in Western countries. We see it very evidently in Australia. So this is a phenomenon. And I think we do need to ask ourselves the question, what is happening? Is this the end of religious life? Are, are, we, are we saying that uh, religious life somehow had a role in the, in the church previously, but now it's, um, it's in decline? And, and I think it's true to say that uh, in years to come, a number of religious orders of women in Australia will, will simply disappear uh, as, as their members die. So um, it is a very important question to ask. Why has this change taken place? Well, someone would observe the chronology of it all and say, well, was it a result of Vatican II? Did 
Vatican II just give us this realization that religious life wasn't necessary? Or what what role did Vatican II play in religious life? Yes, I, I think. To a certain extent, while there are a whole range of factors, and I wouldn't want to just say it's, it, it all focuses back on Second Vatican Council. However, um, one of the things the, the Second Vatican Council, if you like, as a reforming council did do, while, while it wrote very beautifully and, and, and promoted religious life, did ask religious orders to, to uh, re-examine their, their charism and, uh, and also to, to look at how they can best carry out their, their, their life and, and their ministry within the modern world. Now, part of this was, was a, a sense that um, as there have been quite significant changes in the society, in the world, and religious life does need to, um, to adapt to, to things. I think the classic examples, say, here in Australia were sisters who were wearing habits which were uh, really made for European conditions, maybe cold uh, winters. The and, old wimple. Yes, and the, and the very heavy uh, surge um, habits that they would be wearing in a, in a country like Australia, maybe working in the outback or something like that. It was just something which was not appropriate. But because this was what the sisters always wore, and this was the tradition of the order, and, and therefore the Vatican Council rightly said, well, maybe it's time to, to stop and, 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 and reflect. And the other thing the Vatican Council did do was say, just go back and look at your essential charism so you don't lose touch with what was the original animation to your particular religious order. So the orders all went through a process of re-examining their... Uh, their charism, re-examining also their um, their particular postulates and what's appropriate for, for modern times. But because it was also a time where there was a great deal of change in society, when there were, there were a whole lot of cultural forces at work, I, I think this appropriate moment for reflection and, and re-examination of the charism and the, and the mission of, of, of various religious orders was very appropriate. I think I got caught up in the maelstrom of all sorts of other forces and factors that were at, at work. You know, we, we see, for instance, while uh, some religious orders were clearly founded to be a teaching order, say, in a school, the, the, the extraordinary thing was one would have thought that there would be a recommitment to that particular task of, uh, of the charism of teaching. But in fact, we see many religious actually saying, no, we don't see teaching in, in Catholic schools anymore as the apostles. So we want to get involved in social work, self, social welfare work, or we want to go and become missionaries overseas to work with the poor or something. So strangely enough, they, they actually, a number of orders actually shifted away from their original charism. Now, they may have felt that, well, look, the world has changed and there are new, new needs and so forth, we, we need to adapt. That, that may be, well, uh, quite true. The, the, other, the other thing was this, this whole idea of, of adapting, and as I mentioned the example of the habit, uh, because one of the things that was very significant that did happen was that uh, orders began to change their habits. And, and initially, I think a lot of it was very sensible. So some of the changes we saw in Australia were really adapting that uh, habit to modern conditions, particularly making them more comfortable and uh, more suitable for, say, Australian conditions. But somehow what began as a, a simple change just sort of 
kept going. <laughs> it didn't stop. And uh, then, then the religious sort of say, well, well why do we why wear a habit? We prefer just to, to have a simple insignia, if you like. Uh, and so we, we saw orders basically abandoning uh, a habit uh, completely. One of the other things that happened too was, was there was, in the past, religious orders always would tend to have, if you like, a corporate apostolate. You know, the our particular order is formed to, to run hospitals. Our particular order is formed to teach in schools. Our particular order is formed to be overseas missionaries. Um, but and all the sisters would, would be involved in that particular work. So they would all be committed to running a hospital. They'd be all committed to, to running a school. They'd be all committing to, to being having clinics in uh, isolated places, whatever. But what happened was, um, and it's a bit of the spirit of the times, people started to feel a personal desire to, to pursue a particular apostolate. So they would then um, say, well, I, I really feel called to serve the poor. I know we're, we're an order founded to teach in schools, but I want to, I feel called to do this, I call to do that. I want to be involved in uh, higher education rather than just teaching a primary school, whatever. You know, so there could be all these individual desires to pursue particular Apostles, uh, uh, which of course were quite good, but what happened was that the the corporate um, apostolate started to, to to be lost, and and more and more uh, a lot of the works of the orders could no longer be sustained, and therefore we, we see now that many of the order, many of the orders have handed over their their works uh, to to lay administration and so on. Not only was it the decline in the number of sisters available for the work, but also many of the sisters diversified, and so they no longer were able to do the work. And and, and along with this then went uh, another thing, that sometimes sisters were doing diverse works that caused them to have to travel or, or, or go to, to, to places that where the sisters didn't previously exist, and so the sisters then started to abandon a common life. So before living in the convent, many of them started to, to need to live in, in apartments or, or live in other arrangements away from the common life. Now, technically, they all said we belong to a particular community. This was their community, but they, they had no effective participation in community life. So all these sort of factors, I think, uh, cause a, a scattering, if you like, of the of the of the charism of the focus of the common life of the sisters, and uh, I think all these factors, if you like, have have meant that while the sisters are doing and, and they do exemplary work in, in so many areas, but in a sense they've lost something in the process. They've lost a, a clear common identity, uh, often a, a strong clear. Um, spirituality specific to that order. They've lost corporate works whereby the sisters are clearly present and clearly fashioning and shaping the, that particular postulate. And so I think young women today can, can really admire what, what the sisters are doing, but there's a, a lack of a sense of exactly what it means to be a sister. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen a, a dramatic decline in vocations to, uh, to, to religious life at the present moment. So what, what will be the future of religious life then going in, you know, from, from now on, Bishop Julian? 
I mean, it seems that the Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, um, the aims of it, it perhaps had an opposite effect with some of with some of these problems that have happened. How do we reclaim the council's original intentions, or, or what do we do? What's the future here? First thing I'd say, I, th- I think there is clearly a, f- a future for religious life in, in the church. Um, women consecrating their lives to God has been part of the the church from its very beginnings, and and religious life, uh, women committed to to a life consecrated to God, uh, will endure in the church. I think at the present moment uh, those vocations are around, but I, I, th- I think one of the difficulties is that young women can't quite see something that, if you like, approximates to what they sense is religious life. And I think that the future will be when religious orders are able to clarify their identity as, as consecrated religious. And, and I think it, it, it's... It's got to be firstly, I think firstly it's got to be common life. I, I think the nature of religious life is common life. So, so they, I think the sisters need to live together, need to have a rule of life, need to have a structure to their life. I also think it's very important that, that they do have a very clear identity as consecrated religious women. And I believe very much in the place and role of the habit. Uh, that we always say the habit doesn't make the nun, but um, but the habit does two things. It, it firstly gives a great sense of clarity to who I am, and also I think it's a very significant witness to the world, and I think it'll also be a witness in terms of attracting others to consider this life. If religious become a bit invisible, which they are, it's very hard for many people to see who they are and, and see this as an alternative uh, way of life that may be attractive to, to some young women. And I, I think the other thing that is very important, I, I do believe that a religious congregation has a particular charism. It must live that charism, and part of that charism will be, to a large extent, will be that there is a common apostolate and that the sisters will work together in a common apostolate. So it won't be just one sister doing one thing, but it'll be a group of sisters working together in a common apostolate and, and it'll be seen that this is, this is the work of the uh, congregation. And this will be attractive because, again, young women will see this is a life that is dedicated to this particular work. I can see the great value of this. I'm attracted to want to serve in this particular way in the church. So I think, essentially, um, we, we need to see a, a, a re fashioning, if you like, of the nature of, of um, religious life in the church. I, I think to a certain extent this is going to come about by new expressions of religious life. Um, I think it would be very difficult for many of the orders, say those in Australia, that have gone down this path uh, that I've described before, of being able to refashion themselves back to these, these elements I've mentioned. So uh, I, I think we'll see emergence of new orders. I think there are many orders now that, that do exist around the world that have preserved the true nature of, of religious life, and I think they will, and they are attracting vocations, and they will continue to do so. Um, so I, I, th- I think while it's still very, very slow, uh, we are seeing some signs of a resurgence of, if you like, traditional religious life in the church. 
and I, I hope and pray that we'll see this continue to grow and flourish. The church so much needs the, 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 the presence, the gift of consecrated women. Well, thank you very much, Bishop Julian, for a heartfelt and very honest and hopeful look into religious life. Thank you. where it's my turn to ask a question and um, actually in conversation with you we, we discussed the uh, question of concelebration and I'd like just to ask you firstly have you noticed when you've been to um, particularly great some of the great cathedrals in Europe have you noticed that there is the main sanctuary area but then around the back of the cathedral are all these altars oh noticed that and I always think that's just a bit of overkill on the architect's part. Yes, but why? And, and sometimes there can be 30 or 40 altars, yeah. can't there? there are a huge number of altars and, yes. and down the sides of the church there are all these altars. Yeah. So if you go to, to St Peter's Basilica you'll see all these altars down the, the, the side of the, the church. And of course that, that, that was because uh, <clears throat> in times past um, the, the, the practice was that every priest would say his own mass. And so now, for instance, when I go to, submit to, to, to Rome, if I'm staying in Rome, I'll, I'll, and I celebrate a mass at, at uh, St Peter's Basilica, then I would go down the sacristy, but I'd go off to one particular altar to celebrate the mass. It was only really at the Second Vatican Council that the concept of concelebration oh. was introduced. So... So the reason we had all those multiple altars because every priest said Mass individually. But now um, the Second Vatican Council um, saw the, the natural uh, sense of priests concelebrating together as a sign of the unity of the, of the priesthood. And, and in particular, of course, the, 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 the best expression of concelebration would be the bishop and his priests, the sense of the presbyterate, united with the bishop, celebrating Mass together. In fact, I, I had the privilege of being at the largest concelebrated Mass in history, uh, which was held at the conclusion of the Year of the Priest. And there were 15,000 priests and bishops concelebrating a Mass with the Holy Father. Wow. So uh, that is a record. That yeah. must have been a very large sanctuary. <laughs> yeah, and there was one layperson. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but but the, the, the part of the reason um, for those altars was because priests didn't celebrate, but now they do. And so the church has then adapted the liturgy to provide for, for concelebration. And so obviously there's always the principal celebrant and, and always has to be one Celebrant, so it's not like we all just take turns doing different parts, but there's one who's the principal celebrant, and in, in particular, of course, the bishop would be the preferred principal celebrant. Then you have the, the priests concelebrating. Normally, one priest would read the gospel, not, not the principal celebrant, but one priest would be the priest to read the gospel if there's no deacon present. And when it comes to the Eucharistic prayer, uh, there are parts that are said by the principal celebrant, but they're also parts that where individual celebrants uh, contribute. And depending on the Eucharistic prayer, the, the, um, if you look at the first Eucharistic prayer, there are fundamentally two, two sections of the Eucharistic prayer before the consecration 
and two sections of the Eucharistic prayer after consecration that are said by concelebrating priests. But there are other sections where all the priests say it all together. So you have three, if you like, ways in which the priests participate in the Eucharistic prayer. The principal celebrant has passed to say, the priests together, mainly the prayers around the consecration. So you'll notice then from the moment of the epiclesis when the hands are stretched out to invoke the Holy Spirit to come upon the, the bread and wine, from there through to the end of the, the consecration is said by, the, um, by all the priests together. And in the first Eucharistic prayer, we also say some sections afterwards in common. But then, then it goes to other concelebrating priests to do other sections, and we all come back and say the, the final doxology together, through him, with him, and in him. So there are simple uh, rules for concelebration now that have been developed. But really, it's something which has only come into the church since the Second Vatican Council. Well, I really did not know that, Bishop. Thank you for, um, yeah, for opening my eyes. It's, it's a wonderful piece of knowledge there. Thank you. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for another episode of Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. For more episodes, visit radio.org.